0: Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way, I wanna jump over the pack and here he comes! <laughs> For the latest, Gee, good. time sharp. Razzle, good, yeah. dazzle, oh, who else? of day oh, one From inside the Square. Boys kick kick <laughs> 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 day, all. Benjamin Castle here alongside my brother Ethan for episode 139 of Americans Watching the Footy, our first post-spectacular episode. This is our prelims recap here, and uh, we're going to do the post-mortems in this one as well for the teams that bowed out, so just right after the game breakdowns there, just because we want to leave some time for other stuff in the grand final preview. Yeah, the grand final preview, we're going to have a little recap of Brownlow Night, which is just a couple hours away at the time of recording. Yeah, and not- I, I feel like we should keep the grand final preview two grand final week things, not the two teams that nearly got there, or, well, one really nearly got there, and the other was close to getting there. The other scored the first five goals and then kind of vanished. We'll talk about all of that, but first, it's time for... News, everyone! So, a couple things here involving North. Which one do you want to get out of the way first? The one that doesn't make me irrationally angry. Or actually, rationally angry. I would say it's pretty rational for both of those. Remember how I said we were talking about Ben Mackay, how Hawthorne would be a much better fit if he wants to win now, and then I said, now watch him go to Essendon and not make a final for another decade? Well, half of that's come true. He's chosen Essendon, and North are likely to get pick three compensation based on his salary, So. North are going to have, I think, four first rounders this year, and they're going to end up with nine in three years. I think the concept of care packages given to a team just because they suck is complete fucking bullshit. Get better, make better decisions on and off the field. Also, you didn't even win the spoon. Like what I think of as the closest equivalent in American sports is what's considered the competitive balanced draft picks in baseball, which are basically given to teams that are. From smaller markets because there's no salary cap so in theory smaller market less money for media revenue less to spend on players but there's a salary cap here yeah everyone pretty much has an almost identical team salary maybe you know maybe i don't know to make a team more appealing to players that like a team that struggles to land players you could maybe increase their salary cap a bit i think that would make more sense or like like i've thought for a long time Because who the fuck would ever sign in Winnipeg that that should be, like, a privilege the Winnipeg Jets have, that they just get, like, twice as much money as everyone else to spend, and even then most guys still wouldn't want to sign with them? Yeah, I mean, why would you want to go play hockey in a city that doesn't even have an airport? That's it! Back to Winnipeg! I like what they did last year, if you have to have any sort of care packages, trading things on so that you can build up kind of the middle part of the list with players. I didn't mind that nearly as much, and unfortunately we didn't see those couple players that they got be as impactful this year, and Griffin Logue will be out for a good portion of next year as well with his ACL. He's going to have to have an even more important role in the back line when he gets back, though, without Mackay there. Hey, the Cats just had their worst season in eight years. They deserve a KO package. The Eagles haven't asked for one yet, but if they have another bottom two year, they should demand even more than what North just got. Honestly, any team that misses finals, like, especially a team in Geelong's position, that's been incredibly successful for a while, or Richmond, or even the Bulldogs, should ask for care packages from the league just to prove what a bullshit concept it is. Just to add to all the other things that make the draft as complex as they are with father-son stuff and academies, I was wondering, you know, why there isn't a lottery. It would just make things even more confusing. Um, Let's just do quick recaps of things that don't get us rationally angry. I mean, I'm not rationally angry at Brennan Cox for signing on through 2030 at Freo. You know, I have nothing against the idea of Makai going to Essendon. I think, you know, it's his choice. He's also pretty good friends with Jordan Ridley, so that may have impacted things there. Ridley, Laverty, you've got some decent interceptors there. It's just the group just didn't mesh this past year, and Zerk Thatcher's off to port. I think that'll actually be a pretty good fit for him because he can... Go up against some taller targets, but he'll have a to take the weight off of him. The other news item, um, Adam Uze had a pretty good 46th birthday. His wife called him to ask if he was going to like get pizzas to bring home for the little party they were going to have. He said, can't really do that right now. I'm in a Richmond polo. That's pretty great. That's, yeah, that's, that's a good birthday to me. Happy birthday. You're hired. Almost as good as happy birthday. You've coached your team to the grand final. That was, uh, Craig McRae? Yup, happy 50th birthday. That's a good transition opportunity. Yeah, thanks. Collingwood 8-10-58, defeating Greater Western Sydney 8-9-57. Ooh, actually, we do have to backtrack a bit, because we didn't finish talking about the whole Richmond thing. Uh, Andrew McWalter will not be staying with Richmond, but he's on good terms with them. He wants to stay coaching in Victoria. Got a pretty young family there. One thing that I saw online that makes a lot of sense, just somebody on Twitter mentioned this, succession plan at the bulldogs i mean i think the bulldogs need to just wipe everything clean as i've said but they won't with a premiership coach yep we we know how this goes we know how this works you know there are cases where premiership coaches don't get back there but they've kept their teams competitive for a long time we could see a flag in their future still potentially make the sydney swans i just don't see that at the bulldogs so now are we ready to talk prelims yes we're we're ready yeah, so pies over the Giants by a single point on Friday night, 97,665, the largest crowd of the season, pretty much all Collingwood. As, as was to be expected out of that, I didn't expect them to top the Melbourne and Carlton semifinal crowd. That was not something I had on my bingo card. I had Mason Cox scoring a goal and getting into it with the man on the bark on my bingo card, though, and it took until the fourth quarter, but that happened. This was a super entertaining game, even though it was lower scoring. It was just a lot of talent, really high pressure the entire time, tremendous intensity. GWS were up 10 at half and had a 16-point lead early in the third quarter. Collingwood rallied, took the lead, late in the third. Teams went back and forth for a while. There were a couple of stretches where it really felt like next goal wins. One of those came midway through the third. Giants were up by 11, and... Braden Maynard set up Jamie Elliott after Jack Crisp was able to run through a tackle. Then they took the lead on a Bo McCreary snap, and the Giants briefly led with a couple behinds, but once Brody Majacek got away from Jack Buckley and made it five out of six goals for Collingwood, the Giants didn't lead again. The moment that really, really summed it up to me was... Lockie Keefe not going to one of the multiple open options, including Toby Green, and he hit the post. I believe you tweeted that he will never see heaven? Yes. Someone's going to have to put a fatwa on him. I already used up my fatwa allotment on Kenyon Drake. You only have one a week? Or is it monthly? Or how long? I don't know. I just... You can't just be throwing fatwas out there. There were a couple other misses. Uh, Some of the early ones for the Giants, Callum Brown... You know, things that in a one-point game you really think of, there were multiple chances where the Giants had, you know, multiple open men and, you know, guy ends up taking it himself and it doesn't work, but the Keith one was really bad. Now that I think about it, he's probably the weakest link on their list, like, of the guys that were playing in this game, I think, and that's not, like, a huge knock on him because they have a lot of really good players and you could do a lot worse, but I think he's something of a weak spot compared to the rest of the team. Would you have set Haynes in over him for more support in the back and then have Himmelberg or Cummings swing forward more? Something like that. It's funny thinking, despite the fact that they you know missed a bunch of kicks for goal, that I think the solution would have been playing another defender and just shuffling the pieces around. Certain magnets work better swinging, for, swinging out of their positions than others. That makes sense to me. I mean, of course it makes sense. I'm the one that fucking suggested it. I was really concerned for the Giants at the start of the second quarter because it was they weren't playing their style of footy at all in the first quarter, and then Tom Green actually ended up getting some more stoppage and contest wins. They were able to spread from there, as they done really since they since they turn around their season. Honestly, going back to when Toby Bedford made his debut in Sydney Derby twenty five, they were able to start doing that. Just when you had the both the flanks in place with him and Daniels and then Toby Green just doing whatever the hell he wanted, and surprisingly to us throughout the year, it was not doing things to get himself suspended. Look at my left. That's sexy. Not. And and Daniels, and speaking of Daniels, he ended up beating Nick Dacos in some of the, in some of the one-on-ones they had on the ground, and it's clear that Nick has a lot of work to do on the defensive side of things. It's going to be really funny going back and when it came down to it, though, in the fourth, the Giants were playing tired, and that was when Collingwood made the most out of outnumber their outnumber situations, ended up getting ended up getting the ball out like the Giants were wanted to do for, for a lot of this season. And otherwise, when the Pies weren't able to get out themselves, they just caused a whole lot of stoppages. Their stand in the final two minutes was just locking the ball up whatever chance they could. Basically, what Melbourne didn't do against Carlton last week. It's almost like trying to take the steam out of a rugby union match, that sort of thing. But yeah, when you're kind of in that end game mode, that is something you want to do is just, if you don't have the ball yourself, just outnumber, get the stoppages, waste more time that way. And Collingwood did that as well as we've seen any team do it all year. I know we're spending a lot of time eulogizing the Giants here before we actually get into the official postmortem, but I'm surprised that it, we've gone this far without talking about the mammoth game that Jordan degoey had. He was everywhere in the middle of the field, 34 disposals, 17 contestant possessions, 13 clearances. And Collingwood won clearances for this game 44 to 26, including 33 to 18 from stoppage, which is funny because that's how the Giants kind of did it to Port Adelaide a week earlier. A lot of that was built up in the first quarter and then otherwise preventing any clear possession off of the late stoppages kept that margin where it was as well. Really strong start as well from Steel Sidebottom, who had seven clearances of his own as part of a 24 disposal effort in which he gained 537 meters. So 20 clearances between the two of them, 26 for the entire Giants list. Another thing that helped Collinwood shut things down late was their intercept marking, plus six on intercept marks in the fourth. That was the biggest margin of any quarter throughout the game. And it was something that was highlighted on the post game on Fox footy. The combination of Murphy and Moore back there has been so important. The two of them feed off each other. Murphy with more of the one-on-one ability wore the roving tall. They were able to lock things up against a talented but sometimes undersized Giants forward group. Actually, I'll say often undersized considering it's your small who ended up kicking 66 goals for the year. And I mean, who's the tallest board out there not named Lockie Keith? I think of Jesse Hogan in that regard. I usually think uh, yeah. a... Even if it might be someone else by actual height, just Jesse Hogan's a big, strong dude. Yeah, and Hogan, 48 goals on the season, a bit more accurate than he'd been in the past, I think. Not any crazy misses here from what I recall. We were thinking a lot about the one-on-one matchups in this game going into it, thinking that Sam Taylor might get Brody check because he's the type of player who can just go off for four or five goals out of nowhere. Instead... It was Dan McStay who went to Taylor in the 450 and might have been the best one-on-one matchup with Taylor all season. That worked extremely well to limit somebody who I consistently say is the best one-on-one defender in the league. McStay has done this to some really good players throughout the year. I hope that Sam DeConing was watching this because it could give him a confidence lift, knowing like, okay, if it happened to, you know, it happened to me, but it also happened to Sam Taylor. I I can live with this. Unfortunately, of course, McStay went out injured in the third quarter, near the end of the third quarter. A right knee injury confirmed to be a high-grade MCL sprain, so that's his season right there. What is the solution for Collingwood then in the grand final? Is it asking for more out of Mason Cox? Is it getting Billy Frampton in there? I'd imagine if Frampton comes in, the question is where do you put him? I'd say put him up front and leave Jeremy Howe in the back. How I think you could also do some more with like Will Hoskin Elliott. Yeah, just as that deeper, taller target, though, I would say Frampton should get more of that assignment. I know they've tried how up front at times and he did have that three goal burst, but outside of that, he's looked much more. He's always looked much more natural in the back since we started watching. And I don't think the grand final is the time to mess with that again. I do think like you could throw how forward for a few minutes at some point if Frampton's off, maybe. Yeah but don't have that be a permanent thing. Yeah, that's something that should be done like out of necessity, not something that you plan to do right away. It's something that you could end up needing to do and could end up working for you, but it's not like, it wouldn't be my first option. Now, I want to talk about something with Collingwood. There's been a discussion among like a lot of people, especially people that ascribe to some of the advanced stats in footy about this team being unbelievably lucky. And yes, they did lose the expected score by about five and a half but I really do think, despite the luck they've had with the you know various teams' kicking accuracy, that there is a lot of substance to what they do, and I think they have some things that just don't show up in statistical models. Expected score is great for what it is, but it's only a model of actual scoring shots, rather than plays all over the ground, doesn't take into account the pressure that they're able to put on, the work they can do at stoppages, and then just there are players who we think, Okay, they are winners for just the whole body of work they put in. And we've talked about Bo McCreary and Nathan Murphy in that sense throughout the year. Particularly McCreary. You you look at that goal he had to make it 42 to 41, getting front position there. Yeah, those are the ones that really come to mind for me. Those those two players in particular. I thought we'd have, you know, more to say about this game, but it's just, damn, this was fun. This is one of those games if you wanna show someone what footy is and not, like, try to wow them with a super high-scoring game. This is the sort of game that you want to show. Hope it worked for the Los Angeles Kings. Yeah, I'm super jealous of them. Firstly, playing a preseason game in Australia to begin with. First time the NHL has done anything in the Southern Hemisphere, a couple games over at Rod Laver Arena, and looked like it drew pretty well because Australians will go to any sport in town. And I'm sure they were, there were a lot of people batting on it. Chances are you're about to lose. But that this was the Kings' introduction to Australian rules football. And of course, they were in Collingwood colors. It kind of makes sense between Mason playing and also just they wear black and white and silver. They should have never taken the purple out of their color scheme as much as they have. No, honestly, I think they should have gone all in with the purple. But regardless, jealous of them that that was their first live footy experience. Like you get 97,000 people, the most famous team, you get a final... You get a one point game. You get an American putting on his typical act in the best way possible. This is like such a good way to get more people interested. And I hope that someone comes out, you know, just like if one or two members of the traveling party that were at this game come out of it thinking, man, that was awesome. I want to see more of this instead of just telling people, oh, yeah, Australia was really cool and then not really thinking about it much anymore. That's a huge success. You know, it just takes a couple. Well, imagine if the Kings end up doing something with the Dragons. That would be like the best result out of this, yeah? Yeah, I feel like that's probably highly unlikely, but I can dream... Damn, it would be cool category. I can dream, Harold. I can dream, Harold! Other high performers for Collingwood that we haven't mentioned yet. Nick Dacos on return, a behind 28 disposals at 520 meters, had a couple pretty long stretches on the bench. Was wondering if that was a plan with some time management for him. Scott Pendlebury, 25 disposals and eight marks, among a number of other great things about his game. Just still an incredibly clean player. And even though he plays for Collingwood, I feel like he's... Am I wrong in saying that he's a player that people still tend to respect? Yeah, I'd say I'd say side bottom to an extent gets that treatment as well. Yeah. So game 383 coming up for Pendlebury in the grand final. He has an outside chance if he plays two more years to catch Brett Harvey. I just, I just want to mention really quickly how much I appreciate counting final stats towards stuff because American sports don't do that, and it's really dumb. Like, no American sports at all. Penelbry also has 6 inside 50s, 5 score involvements, and 404 meters gained. He's doing this at age 35. How? Tom Mitchell, I said, in the final weeks of the home and away season, he's going to need to lift. He did. 24 disposals, 12 contested possessions, and an octopus. Jack Chris. Kicked 1-1 from 19 and 541 meters. Isaac Quinter with 19 as well. 8 marks and 491 meters gained. Jeremy Haub with 15 disposals and 10 marks. He's going to take a hanger in the grand final, isn't he? I hope so. Again, this season, for all the great things that have happened, has been lacking in the jaw-dropping mark department. Aside from a couple from Harry Hemelberg, Yeah, so that would, be, that would be something nice. I'm just wanting a close grand final in the first place because... We haven't really gotten that in our three years watching. And having two teams that are on equal rest should help with that. I mean, that's, that was the case last year as well, I guess. But also on top of that, um, two teams that have a history of playing good grand finals as well. Thinking back to O two and O three, which I've gone back and watched. Collingwood were 17 in hitouts, by the way, 45 to 28. Mason Cox doing good things against Kieran Briggs. Yeah, I don't know if Briggs was bothered some still by the shoulder, but they did a really good job limiting him, whether or not his health was compromised, and should get a lot of credit for that. And Mason, being the first rate ruck, really asserted himself there since round twenty four. So expect him to take the first bounce against Big O. Two forty six is going at it. Just a reminder: during the offseason, we're going to do a thing where we come up with the best player with each jersey number this season. Yes, I've already got a whole spreadsheet worked out for that. Josh Kelly led the Giants with 34 disposals, 11 intercepts, 607 meters. Tom Green, a goal, 31 disposals, 564 meters. Stephen Canelio, 25 disposals. Daniel Lloyd in his final game, a goal, a behind, 14 disposals and 8 marks. Sam Taylor, 13 intercepts. A weird thing. The Giants only using 59 interchanges. I know there were a couple of stretches and they were focusing on it more for Collingwood where like play was so far from the bench that they couldn't get people back on. Yeah, they couldn't get on to Goey at the end of phase. Worked out for him though. Also want to give a lot of credit to Connor Iden for the game he played. I saw him as the Giants best defender all night. Yeah, I was, I was very impressed with him. We've learned a lot about his versatility this year, being able to take one-on-one targets, maybe kind of, the tertiary guy for that, I guess. Or, or maybe quaternary, is that the word for it? Because you'd have... veterinary or quaternary? I think it's, it's, I think it's quaternary, but... Because you can have Jack Buckley and Harry Himmelberg taking taller ones, but Iden can take on media or small targets really well. And it's just a good roving defender as well. Yeah, remember how we were concerned about their defensive structure going into this season? Yeah, it ended up being a lot more than just Sam Taylor. And I guess now it's time to get into the post-mortem. I, I mean, yeah, this is... This is one thing just kind of transitioning into it. We knew that this team could score. We knew that their midfield was in a good spot still. But outside of Taylor, we I guess we just didn't expect as much out of defense. Maybe we didn't expect Harry hillberg to stay back there as he did all year and do a great job going up against some of the tallest targets. And then there's Ivan, who our perception of improved dramatically over the course of this season. Amazing to think that this team was 4-8 after round 12, and they were in 15th. Then they rattled off seven wins in a row, and it got to the point where they were considered favorites in Week 1 of Finals, and we both saw them winning the semifinal against Port, and we were corrected in that. As I mentioned earlier, once they got Toby Bedford back from injury, it allowed him and Daniels to take up those flank spots. Daniels also doing a lot of work well upfield and starting back from defense, but basically, you have the two of them in together, Daniels and Bedford, it allowed Toby Green free reign. And he parlayed that into All-Australian captaincy. Also, Adam Kingsley, Coach of the Year, no doubt. Uh, Watch it still be Craig McRae somehow. No, it's got to be Kingsley. Look, Coach of the Year, if it's anything like how it's done with American Coach of the Year awards, it's whose team exceeded expectations the most. And pretty clear who exceeded expectations the most. I would say Kingsley, then Voss, actually. Ken Hinckley, maybe third or fourth I don't know but just should be a ways out there but Kingsley's the obvious one they went from this team that just had a knack for playing extremely boring games last year to returning somewhat to the Orange Tsunami and doing it in a way that fit both the younger and older parts of their list which I found most impressive again one of my favorite things about them was the way they were able to Take advantage of bringing in Toby Bedford, like not just as a fast player, but utilizing him on the wing so well and taking him from he was a marginal guy on the periphery of Melbourne. He was just kind of the eternal sub. And then you had him as that flank opposite Daniels and pretty much instant profit from there. You first saw it in round seven in their Sydney Derby 25 win, one of a couple great comebacks for them throughout this season. They had two really strong comebacks against the Crows. One of them in round one at home and then round 18 in Adelaide. But I think when we really started getting excited about them was Sydney Derby. Yeah. Yeah. So my expectations are, well, my goals for the Giants at the start of the year. Like I thought they were going to be towards the bottom of the pack, maybe like a bottom four team. And more than anything, I just wanted them to be interesting because last year they played in so few interesting, entertaining games that were competitive the whole way. It was baby-making footy. I believe, actually, the graphic that I had for that was something with G-Man, who totally looks like a Simpsons character. Kind of Ralph Wiggum plus Lard Lad from Lard Lad Donuts. And, hmm, I'm I'm missing something else, but that's definitely the bigger pieces of it. So, I'm about to do something very Jewish. Which team... I know we had an episode titled Dayenu a few weeks ago. Was that also referring to the Giants? I don't... all. well, here's the thing. Since it is Yom Kippur, you know, make sure you wish everyone a happy Yom Kippur because it's a happy holiday, just like happy Ash Wednesday, happy Good Friday, happy Lent. You know, we'll all be spinning our dreidels and eating our matzah. But anyway, I'm going to do this thing that I definitely did once before in some context. Had they not come back from down four goals to win the Sydney Derby, die a do. Had they come back from down four goals to win the Sydney Derby and not won a Cardinia Park which they have a knack for doing. I think they've won three trips in a row down there. Dayenu. Have they come back from down four goals in the Sydney Derby, one at Cardinia Park, and not blasted the Dockers? Dayenu. Had they come back from down four goals to win the Sydney Derby, one at Cardinia Park, blasted the Dockers, and not won in terrible conditions at Alice Springs? Dayenu. Have they come back from down four goals to win the Sydney Derby, one in Cardinia Park, blasted the Dockers, one in terrible conditions at Alice Springs, and not won the fourth quarter five goals to zero at the Adelaide Oval? Dianu. Had they come back from down four goals in the Sydney Derby, won at Cardinia Park, blasted the Dockers, won in terrible conditions at Alice Springs, outscored the Crows five goals to zero in the fourth quarter in Adelaide Oval, and not come back from down 29 to beat the Bulldogs in Ballarat. Dayenu. Had they come back from down four goals to win the Sydney Derby, beating the Cats at Cardinia Park, blasted the Dockers, won in terrible conditions at Alice Springs, outscored the Crows five goals to zero in the fourth quarter in Adelaide Oval, rallied from down twenty-nine points to beat the Bulldogs in Ballarat, and not made finals. Dayenu, and you get you get the rest of it. They they won two finals. This team did so much more than the bare minimum, and it was really fun to watch. And I'm just very happy for them. I'm just glad they were an entertaining team because a lot of times this team has been kind of dull. Even when they made finals in 2021, they were kind of dull. Even when they won that Sydney Derby by a point in Launceston of all places. Oh yeah, speaking of uh, winning in weird places, 11 different venues at which they recorded wins this year. That is an AFL record. In order, Giants Stadium, Norwood Oval, SCG, Cardinia Park, Bloodstone Arena, Traeger Park, Adelaide, Monica, Mars Stadium, Marvel Stadium, and the G. Hey, wait a minute. Where's Optus Stadium? Couldn't beat the Mighty Eagles in the Fortress. Round two. That they started the season like that, losing to the Eagles in round two, and still made finals, and still made a prelim also. What was also so fun about this team is that the known commodities really showed up in maybe more magnified ways than we expected at times, for just a little different ways as well. We knew about Lockie Whitfield, but I don't think either of us realized how dangerous he could be whenever he was given any space to operate. Meanwhile, you have another Lockie in there, Lockie Ash, who had done some tagging work in the past, really when it wasn't new AFL commission member Matt DeBoer. Yeah, that news came out recently. Good for him. Yeah, um, but they really didn't have a main tagger this year, and Ash operated freely in the back and averaged 24 disposals a game. One thing I did expect, though, was a big first full season out of Finn Callahan, and even with an Achilles injury getting in the way at times, averaged 21 disposals and a fast and accurate winger, one of my favorite young players to watch all season long got the Rising Star nomination from an excellent performance in that Road Sydney Derby in Route 7. This Giants team doesn't really need to do much on the trade front, or in general, I mean, yes, they're losing Dan Lloyd to retirement, but most of what they have here either is on the young side, which ought to be incentivized to stay considering the kind of performance they had in this first season under Adam Kingsley and new captain and All-Australian captain Toby Green. That still blows my mind in the best way possible. Then you got the established core who are all clearly in for the long haul, including Harry Himmelberg, who signed a six-year extension to make him really a giant for life. Remember, Richmond... You know, all over him. So if they can overcome their problem with retaining guys, this could be a really, really fun few years for them because that's look, how many times has that been the issue? Where it's like, yeah, they've had good players. You know, their natural identifying talent is obviously very strong. They just haven't been able to keep them. Well, this this might solve that. Now they did do one thing that was absolute fucking bullshit. They delisted Milkman, and Matt, Jason Gilby. Um, you know. I knew he'd have a tough time getting an AFL game as a Category B rookie. Wasn't putting up huge numbers in the VFL, but a great character. Disappointing that he got delisted. Hopefully he can catch on somewhere else or maybe there's an out. I don't think actually they would be able to re-rookie him after the way that they approached the matter. I wanted to catch on somewhere, though, for the sake of dairy everywhere. He was your sleeper pick for the year just because of who he was. I still stand by that. I thought my sleeper pick would have a much more important role in their list this year. That being Jacob Ware, who impressed me a lot in 10 games back in 2022, put on some good pressure, not the biggest tackler or disposer of the ball, but getting involved as a first year player was a great sign. And then in the first two rounds, he got absolutely clobbered multiple times. I think Shane McAdam was the one to deliver some of the blows in round one, and he got suspended for that, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Then got hit hard again against the Eagles, and we didn't see him again until round eighteen. You've got him coming more to the fold next year. You've got Aaron Catman coming more into the fold next year. That's, that's the first time we've mentioned Catlin, yeah? Yeah, because he debuted in the Gather round. had a goal on debut, but it ended up being Jake Ricardi who made his taste through the reserves to come back in, and after only scoring two goals in the first four games of the season before getting dropped, he played. 17 the rest of the way and scored goals in 14 of those games he ended up kicking 35 goals for the year one of will we say the least likely success stories on an individual front for the Giants this year yeah I thought he was gonna be one of the weakest links and it was to the point where in that Geelong game you said really we're letting Jake Riccardi win this for him I will say you could have told me that he didn't play in the prelim and I would have believed you he kicked 1-1 I saw him I barely noticed him. You know the drill. We're on Twitter at AmericansFooty. I'm at CastleMedia, BenjaminHK01. Grian Harambe is on Instagram at CapnameGrian. He's currently sleeping at my brother's feet. Hey, Blues, nice job. You scored the first five goals of your prelim at the GABA. Oh, you only scored four the rest of the way? It looked early on like this was going to be really ugly and then it ended up turning into just a bad beat at the end, where that was the only interest to see, would the line hold? So the Brisbane Lions, 11-13-79, defeating Carlton 9-9-63. They complete their first ever perfect season at the Gabba. I can't believe they actually did it. I thought for sure it would culminate in them eventually losing a final or something. Especially with how this one started, but yeah, 13-13, for they did it. Congration, you done it? Congruda Lions! If there's one thing I learned from the great YouTube series, Your Grammar Sucks, that Jack Douglas used to do, it's that people do not know in particular how to spell congratulations. There are a lot of people who spell lightning as lightening. That's another one. But yeah, there's like congruta lines, crocolations, congrag-you-lashes. There are more. Coagulation. Not sure if I've seen that one from there, but probably did. A what a fook. We're like dipping into old school YouTube here. Carlton won from the middle to start off the game, and Adam Chera did a great job limiting Lockie Neal in the first. Then Neal completely turned around that matchup for the final three quarters and was one of the best contested players alongside Josh Dunkley. Neal ended up with 15 contested possessions, along with 23 disposals and eight clearances. Dunkley with 23 and 16 contested possessions for himself. So for us, the 24 disposals for Jared Berry was enough for the team lead, but got the job done. I was, damn, I was going to quiz you and ask you, like, you know, who had the most disposals on the Lions, and that, that, that kind of just killed it. I mean, I figured it was either Dunkley or Barry, and with Barry being one of those first players to get outside of contests, that doesn't really surprise me. Along with Neil winning those contests, the Lions dramatically increased their pressure in the second quarter. That generated a lot of turnovers, some front half turnovers as well. Fast rebounds from there, they were able to use their speed really well. Meanwhile, the Blues pressure dropped by almost 40 points from the first to the second quarter from 201 elite levels down to below average at 164. I think the was the average 180, I think it is. Something in that range. I don't know if this is one of those things, it's one of those stats where like 180 is the average no matter what, and then like the numbers kind of fall in relation to that average, kind of like some baseball metrics. So with a decent amount of baseball metrics, the way it works is like 100 is the average no matter what. So then it gets like league adjusted. Yeah, like the the plus stats. Yeah. So like some years, you know, a 100 weighted runs created plus like doesn't add up to what it would in other years because like the offensive environment was stronger or weaker. Yeah, that's one thing about which I'm not sure. I would love to ask a One of the people that that creates those metrics about that. But point is, Lions pressure went way up. Blues pressure went way down. And you could really tell. Also, the Lions kicking from the back half was much more effective throughout the game. The combination of Kadeen Coleman and Connor McKenna there was excellent. And I think one of the boldest calls that Chris Fagan has made throughout this season is to back in Coleman and McKenna over Daniel Rich in his final season. It's tough to leave out someone who's been such a beloved and important player for the club for, I guess this would be his 15th season, but it's been the right call because Coleman and McKenna offer so much more than Rich can at his age. It's funny, at the start of the year, one of the reasons I was so high on the Lions was, you know, Kadine Coleman's broken out. They're starting to figure out a real defensive structure. That was, you know, the one area of weakness in past years. And then, you know, his play dipped for a bit and then he really got it going. And defensively, Jack Payne being out, not nearly as big of a deal as I thought it would be because Darcy Gardner limited Charlie Curnow to a single goal. Then again, Curnow didn't help his own cause with a couple misses, but still did a much better job on him than I expected. At the same time, Harry Mackay was getting it done against Harris Andrews early, and then Andrews completely flipped that around. Yeah, that was another matchup that flipped in the second quarter, so... Just a great game in the back half for the Lions. And for a team that loves to play in the front when you get that performance out of your defensive group, it's got me thinking good things about them going into this grand final. Do I think they'll win it? No, but we'll quantify what percentage we think chance they have when we actually are previewing the uh, grand final. And we'll see if that's before or after the lists come out. But it's a sort of game that, I don't think they wanted to have to play, but they did it well. One of the things that sets apart a championship team is that you can win when, and this is one of those things that applies in a lot of different sports, you can win when the game isn't on your terms. Exactly. Most every team can win games when it's played the way they want it played. There aren't a lot of teams out there in really any sport that have the ability to adapt to a game that's not played to their liking. And I think, Both these teams have been really good at that, and I think that's one of the reasons this is going to be such a fun grand final. As the pressure decreased from the Blues, the Lions were able to utilize the space more. After going down 31-1 to in the first quarter, they were up three at the half and never trailed again. Joe Danaher gave them the lead for good late in the second quarter. Also, holy shit, he did media this week. What a delightfully strange person. Like, he's not your typical... No he, tall forward. He just seems like a regular person who just happens to also be this great tall forward. Like he's kind of quirky without like being like, look at me and such a hipster, which is what I really enjoy about him. He's it's just like, yeah, I, I want to live my own life. I want to live in New South Wales. I'm just gonna grin and embarrass it when I have a bad shot. He's kind of like in, this shyly like this super quirky bartender, except he just. He doesn't really want attention, which is funny because he's at a position that commands a lot of attention. Like, I think, you know what he is? He's the bartender working at some place that like, you know, has like a theme to it. He's a mixologist, but like, it's like a speakeasy. It's down in a basement or something. He's not like, oh yeah, check it out. You know, we're so cool here. You just meet him and then he makes you a really nice drink. And it's like, wow, this is really good. I never would have thought of this. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Now, I love that his first name is so regular, too, just Joe. I think that's some of the allure of of him as well. He looks like someone who should be calling tons of attention to himself all the time. You know, he should be just, like, screaming at people to look at him, and he he doesn't do that. The biggest thing that I noticed in this game, by far, that stood out to me was how well Oscar McInerney played when Tom DeConing wasn't out there. Yeah, the coding was getting some repairs done late in the second quarter, and that was the stretch where the Lions ended up taking the lead. And Big O got a couple goals himself as well. He had two goals and 14 disposals. You know who had two goals and 13 disposals? Two goals and 13 disposals. Sounds like a Cal line almost. Patrick Kripp. Uh. I think Achi only had one. And fitting that we're talking about Achi and Cripps as we get ready for the Brownlow count. Cripps had Carlton's last goal, I think, before their drought, and he ended up breaking it as well. Was that right? Yeah, he did have the the last goal before the drought and the one to break it. So that goal drought for the Blues went from about 8 minutes left of the second quarter to under 10 minutes left in the game. I'm just saying, if... Another captain named Patrick only had 13 disposals in a prelim. You would never hear the end of it. So I expect the same sort of treatment for Crips. I don't think so, though, because the fact that they even got to the prelim in the first place, considering where they were, was enough of a story in itself that they're not going to lose any admirers from the game they played. And also, it was Sam Walsh who commanded a lot of the attention. He was clearly the Blues' best throughout finals. Best part for Carlton, though, he'll actually have a preseason to be able to build up and train going into 2024 because with his uh disc issue last year, that was not the case because they waited so long for him to have surgery. If you told me before this season, did you know there were a lot of Carlton fans at this game? I don't think that was mentioned enough. Yeah, there were a lot of Carlton fans at this game. I, I know it has not been mentioned enough. Uh, did you see Mitch Robinson's vlog yet? I have not. I've got a lot of crap on YouTube that I need to catch up on. He had his blues jumper on early on, and he was in the blues section for a lot of the game. And when the Lions took the lead, he put on his Lions jumper. That's what I call doing a mat. Oh, your friend Matt, who just like goes with whoever wins anything. I will never forget watching. Uh, I'm sitting at BJ's texting back and forth with him watching the NCAA tournament. And just flipping and, back and forth between teams. Yes, like the moment Oregon took the lead, go Ducks. The moment Michigan took the lead, go Blue. <laughs> Does is he just doing it to fuck with people? I don't know. This was in week sixteen in two thousand seventeen, I believe. That's the only NCAA tournament matchup I can find between them, and it was a back and forth one point game. So go figure. That that checks out. Yeah. But that's that's really funny. Yeah, he was there. But you know, the the broadcasters kind of hammered the Carlton has a lot of fans here to death. And early on, they were showing all the people watching over at Prince's Park as well. They showed that a few times later. When it was uh happy. it was much more subdued than. Yeah. All right. Some important performers we haven't mentioned yet for the Lions in terms of stats Dane Zorko with 22 disposals. He will finally make the grand final, and it will be his 250th game. Hey, that worked for someone last year. Ethan smiles and nods. Kadeen Coleman's stat line was 21 disposals, 11 intercepts, 10 marks, and 627 meters. Fuck yes. McKenna with a goal from 20 disposals and 558 meters. It may have been the most accurate kicking performance I've seen from him just in terms of field kicking all year. Great time for it. Lincoln McCarthy kicked two goals from 18 disposals and seven tackles. Darcy Wilmot supporting in the back with 18 and eight marks. Ryan Lester with 16 disposals, nine marks and a goal. What? I-, I said before this game that Lions defenders would need to play the game of their lives. I did not think out of all that, that would involve Froggy actually kicking a goal when he hadn't done so all year. Oscar McInerney, two goals from 38 hitouts, 14 disposals and six clearances. I know you... Mentioned a bit of that earlier, but thinking back to these defenders, you got Lester playing that way. You got Gardner doing a good enough job on Kernow. It's going to be really tough to change things up if Jack Payne's good to go. I imagine Gardner would come straight out just because it's the swap that was made going into this prelim, and Payne is a great one-on-one defender. But damn, that would be rough for Gardner to be taken straight out like that after doing so well when he hadn't played in the AFL since I think it was around 13. Forgot to mention one other thing with Wilmot's stats. One proviso. Have fun with that What Do you think any Australians will actually understand that? Only if they w- attended high school in the US. Oh yeah, Harris Andrews, I think he had 11 spoils and 10 marks. Here's a question. Do you think the Lions, when they name their official captain for the game, do you think they're going to name Andrews or Neil? I don't know, but you could kind of say they were fucking spoiling everything. <laughs> in Darcy Moore's words, it would have totally been, yeah. But I would say, name Andrews the captain, and I say that because he's been a Lion his whole AFL career, and also he was born in Fitzroy and then moved to Brisbane. There is no more fitting person to be the captain of the Brisbane Lions than that. Lions were plus 12 in inside 50s, plus 14 in clearances, plus 24 in marks, even with how the game started. Sam Walsh led Carlton with 33 disposals, gained 650 meters. Mitch McGovern, 24 disposals, 9 intercepts, gained 661. Nick Newman, 23 disposals. Adam Chara, not woof, a behind in 20 disposals. George Hewitt also had 20. So did Caleb Marchbank, who also had 10 intercepts and 8 marks. Sam Doherty, a goal and 19 disposals. Jacob Weetering, 17 disposals, 10 intercepts and 8 marks. Also want to give credit to Jordan Boyd, who was the defensive inclusion this week coming in from Brody Kemp, who had not had a great game in the semifinals against Joel Smith and Kazi Pickett. Boyd kept pushing in the second half, even when the game looked to be lost. There's something to gain out of him being brought back into things for this one. I noticed that he and Ollie Hollins were constantly trying to engineer play out of the back in the second half, and... I think we, we've talked a decent amount about Hollins already, the capabilities he has on the wing. Transitioning into the Blues post-mortem, going into this season, we said at the end of last season that the wing was their biggest issue. They fixed that immediately in the trade period by getting Blake Akers for next to nothing. And then they also had Sam Doherty playing further downfield a lot of the time, kind of like what Jack Sinclair did at times. I like how they did that. I think he he did it more forward than than Sinclair, really. Um Sinclair is kind of like towards the pocket, I always see him with the ball, and Doherty was more of a, a truer wing. And then you also had Hollins going in there. I love that it was Hollins to Doherty to Acres for that goal to win the semifinal. It was just like, these are the guys that solved your biggest issue last year, and here they are winning you a final. One thing that I think was really funny was how much broadcasters were talking about, oh, you know, this is the best return for a third round pick ever. It's like We were saying that the moment that trade was made. Like, what a dramatic underpay. Also, uh, are Blake Aker's extremities and hair the main characters of these finals? Because I think it was three times that he saved goals with barely touching one. Kind of insane. Almost as insane as the Blues rebounding from their 4 9 and one start. From rounds five through 13, the only team they beat was West Coast. Just like the Giants, they made finals after sitting in 15th. They won nine straight, and then when they rested a bunch of guys around 24, they finally lost. That was what allowed the Giants to make it into the eight, even though the Giants were without Sam Taylor that night. What we really noticed in the second half of the year was shifting more toward the smaller side of the list, being more comfortable with using speed on the inside and just working play toward the smaller forwards. The inclusion of Jesse Motlob really helped at times. There was one of the games, trying to remember which one now, I think it was around... 18, Yeah, when he came back in after having not played for a few, he wasn't expected to be in. He was eating the brownie before the game, and the coaches suddenly said, hey, uh, you're now in, and he kicked four goals in the first half in the way that stopped Port Adelaide's winning streak. They kind of were just able to create havoc all over the field, and they found the combination that they needed to really have speed up and down instead of just, you know, at a few spots. Going forward, Motloth and Matt always were a big part of that. And Jack Martin became, at times, really the secondary target going into 50, only behind Charlie Kerno. Kerno, by the way, finished up with 81 goals from 26 games. He did score a goal in every game. It was 78 in the home and away to win his second straight Coleman. Also, Tom DeConing went from being a marginal kind of fringe list guy to to graduating from being kind of just a a tall defender with some rock ability to probably being their better rock and maybe the main character moving forward in that role for them. As Mark Pittnet kinda ages and we know Pittnet's been hurt a lot. And they used to be so reliant on Pitnett. I mean Pittnet's good at getting hits to advantage still, even though he was outdone in the prelim by Oscar McInerney. Yeah, that's that's something that happens to a lot of people. But DeConi ended up being that second tall option because they were using Makai as more of a tall mark throughout the ground, which I liked. Lost his goal-kicking form, still a fine mark. Utilized that part of his game. Almost you know, he's also... They kind of used him as a, as like a half-forward, mid-wing hybrid at times. Makes sense, considering he's also this defender that is about to sign a big deal with Essendon. Can we please get them on the field at the same time? What do you mean? Whenever one of them plays, they're on the field at the same time. I want to see how we can... Finally, like, solve this plot hole. Like, seeing if there actually are two Makis. Yeah. Will you only be convinced when you see them together on an AFL oval? Yes. If you see them tonight together at Brownlow stuff, I think that's a deep fake. I think one of them could just be a Terminator. There's some other new, like, cyborg movie thing coming out. Oh, the, the creator? I don't know. All I know is it had, um, they had, like, these things from it walking around SoFi Stadium a couple weeks ago. Yeah, that's the creator, I think. That was weird. Yeah. People needed to treat that like they treated Hitchbot in Philadelphia. Do you not remember Hitchbot? Oh, was that like one of the food delivery bots, like the Kiwi bots out here? No, it was like a robot that was supposed to try to like hitchhike from, I think, New York to L.A. Oh, they they just like basically ripped the thing apart, didn't they? Oh, no, it was trying to go from Boston to San Francisco and then people just like beat the shit out of it in Philadelphia. See, that is Philadelphia culture. Go to Woodrow's. Jacob Wietering finally got his due this season as one of the best defenders in the league. I'd put him right up there in that Tom Stewart, Sam Taylor category. Cal Wilkie was in that realm this year as well. And I had already liked Wietering a lot last year. And now that the team didn't fall flat on its face, he got the recognition that he was due for. And as much as I enjoy laughing at this team's downfall, him playing well makes me happy because I've known for a long time that he's a good player. I mean, I feel like the funny world's known for a long time the kind of player that he could be. He was a one pick a few years back. But it's nice just- to see people recognizing and confirming what I thought. That's what happens when you finally play. That's what happens when your club gets to finals for the first time in a decade. And also, Wiedering was enabled to have more of that backline role staying inside 50 being the deepest man back because... Who was there roping in defense and just being involved in intercepts and passages all over the ground? Hello, Newman. Best sleeper pick of the year, Nick Newman. I nailed that. My Matt Kennedy pick was pretty good as well. He wasn't like the super high disposal guy that he was for a lot of last year, but was still very useful in a lot of different roles. Uh, Well, honestly, one of the things that coincided with this team's winning streak was the coaching staff stopping employing him in defense and actually letting him patrol as a mid-forward. He had a few sub-opportunities as well, which makes sense considering the depth they had in their 22 already and the versatility that he provides. Yeah, he wasn't as much of the big disposal guy this year. I think between Walsh being there for... Between Walsh having a complete year, Cripps remaining strong in contests, George Hewitt, I believe, was their third highest in terms of contested possessions. That makes sense. That checks out with the way he plays. And also with a more established group on the wing, it makes sense that Kennedy was kind of squeezed out of bit. But Nick Newman having a career year at age 30 is not something that a lot of people would have had in the cards, but he averaged 23 disposals and a bit over seven and a half marks a game. And he was involved just everywhere for this team. If there was a ball in the air anywhere in the back two thirds, the Blues. You would expect to see Nick Newman in the right spot to have an impact. I think that kind of went along with you know you combine that with what wietering did as an intercept defender, and that's yeah exactly a lethal combo. Now, how much longer is Newman able to keep that up? I I don't know. Again, he's thirty, almost thirty one. My other question with this team, you know, they found a combo that worked really well, but some of that depth is going to go away now. You know, Patty Dowell's probably gone. Yeah, I know the Saints have been linked to him. Yeah, I'm surprised we hadn't talked much about him, but when Walsh was out, he was able to step in to that kind of first-guy-outside role that, w- that Walsh had been playing. And I'm glad he finally got an opportunity in the 22 and the 18 at times. I think whoever gets him will be better off for it. It's it's the sort of thing that kind of like happened to Geelong last year with... You know, Francis Evans and Cooper Stevens not having room now. Evans ended up kind of getting underutilized by Port. Stevens couldn't even crack the lineup in Hawthorne, but the cast could have used both of them. And that's one of those things that, like, your luck probably isn't going to last with things like that. You know, guys who you thought were expendable because you were in a position of surplus, that surplus goes away is how this happens a lot. So, you know, this offseason, as you know that kind of, like, overflow layer goes away what do you do to be able to make up for that and again I want to see them also with a bit more depth in terms of taller or even medium height players in the back Brody Kemp is I think 191 centimeters which would put him around I think that would be 6'3 6'4 so he could have more responsibility there tended to stay inside the back 50 though and wasn't as confident as he needed to be disposing of the ball. I look at this list, though, and I wonder who's going to be able to end up taking that sort of role that Newman is playing now in order to keep Wiedering free to be the best Jacob Wiedering he can be. So yeah, my big picture question is, we all know over the course of a year, your team isn't going to look the same at the end of it as it did at the start. Now, Collingwood would have been pretty lucky in that area, for example, that a lot of their list and combinations for success have remained the same same thing with the Brisbane Lions but yeah with that works with very few teams even team like Port Adelaide for all the success they had this year you know ended up for example shifting around Darcy Byrne Jones so and Carrington adjust next year when when the ground starts shaking on him and can they do it before round 14 if you do it earlier then you put yourself in position to have a lot more success obviously that that's kind of one of the more obvious statements I've made because if you know you'd be in a position then where you're talking about strategically resting guys playing for a top four spot and that's that's why it's so important to get off to a good start i think we really saw that this year we've seen we've seen it illustrated by a lot of teams that have had success in recent years like it's hard to run the table but there's an obvious reward to pulling it off if if you can do it and uh yeah we got the top two teams in the grand final and Interestingly enough, they were your prelim losers last year. I believe that's the first time that's happened, at least in the AFL era. So, going back to 1990. With that, I don't really have a specific goal or mark that stood out, but I do have a main character. You do. The Gabba Siren. Uh Aha! We hadn't mentioned it yet. Was it broken? Or was the Siren Operator just so excited about them making the grand final that he just kept holding it until nearly the first time through the song was over. I don't know, you know, we need to... How about for the rest of the episode, which isn't going to be very long, we have the siren. Really? Yes, really. Uh, sure, I mean, I guess I'll just loop my trombone siren thing. Yeah, go for it. All right, hopefully it'll sound okay. We're probably not going to make it, like, loud enough that it overtakes us talking, unlike the one at the Gavin that kind of overtook everything, but I feel like it, it needs to be... It needs to be acknowledged. And also, this is the second time this year that we've had something off the field at the GABA be our main character because in round two, we had the lights. Now, in the second to last game of the season, it's the siren. So, we're going to wrap this up and take in the Bravo medal count and everything. We're going to talk about all of that in our grand final preview. Until then, keep up with our thoughts on Twitter at Americans Footy. We're also on YouTube under that same handle. I am personally on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I am on Twitter at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is on Instagram at Kathleen Brian. And uh, keep spinning those dragles and eating that matza.